Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and for anybody else who loves the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. In just a couple weeks, we're going to have another of our long-form, sort of giant sequoia type of episodes with uh, my dear friend, Dr. Johanna Boss. Uh, But for now, we have a couple more of these mini-episodes. This one's sort of a little uh, bonsai type of episode featuring... uh, our one and only Rachel Wren. So, you just uh, wanted to say bonsai, didn't you? I sure did. <laughs> so this week the lectionary text is uh, following on last week's text, so we're jumping right into Amos 8, the first 12 verses or so. So uh, Rachel, what do you have for us? Yeah, this is a great opportunity. In fact, this whole month is a great opportunity to do a mini-series on uh, the prophets, especially these prophets that we kind of get bits and pieces from, but not so much as Isaiah or Jeremiah. They don't get quite as much play or attention. So here we have two Amos texts in a row, and then coming up we're going to have two Hosea texts in a row as well. It's a great opportunity to kind of sit in it, to dwell in these uh, prophets, in these prophetic texts. Our text for this week follows directly on what Tim expounded on for us last week, Amos 7. And it starts with another episode. In in chapter 7, God shows Amos uh, a something, a plumb line, a piece of tin. We're not really sure what, uh, but we do know what's going on in this one. In your NRSV translation, it says that the Lord God showed me a basket of summer fruit. That word in Hebrew is kites. So pick your favorite summer fruit, mangoes, figs, dates, whatever it might be, kiwi. But hold on to that Hebrew word, kites, because what happens next in the verse is the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. And that word end in Hebrew is the Hebrew word kates. So it sounds like that basket of summer fruit. What God is doing here is using very small things in Amos's life to give him a prophetic word to send to the people. At the end of that verse, we have again the same commandment that he did in verse in chapter seven, where God says, I will never again pass my people by. Mm -hmm. Some some translations try to make that into forgiveness. Uh, Some translations try to make that into dwelling with. It's kind of this idea following along with Exodus that God has always been the one moving ahead of Israel, moving alongside Israel, uh, even passing by like God did Moses upon Mount Sinai. And that that movement, that relationship is somehow coming to an end or is somehow changing. We find out why in verse 5. Verse 5 tells what the elite of Judah have been doing, the elite of Israel have been doing. They say, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? It doesn't sound quite so bad to our modern ears, but Abraham Heschel has a really wonderful and quick explanation of what's going on there in his book, The Prophets. He writes, they are waiting for the day of sanctity to come to an end so that cheating and exploitation can be resumed. It's not just the fact that they were profaning some ritual. It's that the ritual itself was supposed to be this symbol of rest and peace and unity. 
And all they're doing is biding their time so that they can pick up again right where they left off. There has been no repentance. There has been no change of heart. And God is tired of it. So in verse 7, God swears, which is another possible play on Shabbat. Shabbat is the Sabbath. And when God swears, it's nishbah, never to forget these things that the elite have done. And in verse 8, we hear what God's going to do about it. The land will tremble and everyone who lives in it will mourn. And that's a little bit problematic to our modern ears because if it is the wealthy, or if it is the elite or any small group that are doing the bad things, why is everybody having to suffer? Why is the land having to suffer? Why is it a universal suffering that is God's response? This continues in verse verse 10, where God says, I will turn your feasts into mourning, all your songs into lamentation, sackcloth on all bodies, baldness on every head, and I will make it like the day of mourning for an only son. Now, put a pin in the universality piece for a minute. We'll come back to that when we talk about preaching angles. But I want to lift up one more thing that Abraham Heschel says about this part. He says that there was a belief in the coming of a day of the Lord when God would triumph over all his enemies and establish his rule in the world. But in the eyes of most people... That belief meant salvation for Israel, regardless of conduct. What's happening here is not God throwing a petty fit because God's chosen people are not acting the way he wants them to. What's happening here is that God is saying, no, good behavior, righteous behavior, moral behavior is required of everyone, Israel, including you, and that your conduct does have consequences. This is pointing the finger directly at Israel when Israel thought it could hide behind its status as a chosen people. Now in verses 11 to 12, the tone starts to change a little bit. It sounds a little bit less like universal disaster and maybe a little more like a metaphor. The time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not for bread, not for thirst, but for the word of the Lord. And the image continues with people wandering about seeking the word of the Lord. So again, for our modern sensibilities, it feels like it starts to get a little better towards the end. (laughs) Well, maybe we can metaphorize the suffering a bit. But we're still left with this odd feeling of God bringing disaster upon the earth because of the very bad behavior of a very few people. So what do you do with this text? A couple different preaching angles. First of all, if you want to avoid the whole universal suffering piece, focus in on the fruit. It's a really beautiful image in its simplicity. God is using a basket of summer fruit to give a message to Amos. It reminds me a little bit of the writings of Frederick Beekner, the Episcopal priest and theologian and writer who once found God in the clacking of sticks against each other. Hmm. There are small places in people's lives where God shows up in a big way. And that could be a really fruitful sermon. Forgive Ouch. the pun. I apologize. I did not even mean to do that, but it came out of my mouth. So, The second thing you could do is focus in on those wicked and their actions. Because 
it's easy, I think, to separate ourselves from that. Well, I'm not trying to buy anybody for the cost of a sandal. I'm not trying to use crooked scales, whatever that might be, and buying poor people for silver. So that's really bad, people. That's not me. I think that's doing a disservice to what this text is trying to say. There are things that everyone uses in their lives as a substitution for a strong moral compass rooted in God. And we convince ourselves that it's okay because that's how the world works. Politics, economics, even things like sobriety or health of relationships. How do we twist things? How do we cut corners? How do we convince ourselves that what we're doing is for the benefit and not really to the detriment of our spiritual lives. That's a sermon that everybody would need to hear as well. The last thing I would suggest, which, bizarre as it may sound, would be to preach that universal suffering theology. Now, stay with me here for a minute. It can seem at first glance like there's a tendency in the prophets, in the Hebrew Bible for that matter, to sweep away everything and everyone together with one movement of the divine arm. Think Noah and the reset button. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Think here in Amos as all the earth trembles and every inhabitant mourns. This is a tough theology to preach. And it is what we're left with if we stop where the lectionary ends. But as you may have picked up in listening to this podcast, (laughs) there's always more to the story past where the lectionary ends. If you read Amos all the way through to the very last chapter, you finally get to the whole point of what God is up to in this. In Amos 9, verses 9 to 15, God says the plan is to shake Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, so that all the sinners shall be gone, but that not a pebble shall fall to the ground somehow. And the promise is that on that day, once this purification, once this this shaking has taken place. God's plan, God's intent all along is to rebuild the house of David, to raise it up, to to even let the creation itself drip with abundance, to plant God's chosen people so that they shall never be plucked up. What God is getting to in this, what God is always pushing us to is new birth, new life, buildings rebuilt on rock, not on sand. When people from different walks of life will come together in unity and creation itself drips abundance. It's a tough theology to get through, but when you get to the end, it's worth it. I thought you might take us past the lectionary on that one. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Well, Rachel, thanks for those insights. And uh, to those of you who are listening, uh, check out our past episodes on the website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in all the various sundry ways that you can do that, including iTunes and whatnot. Next week, we'll be starting a two-week series on Hosea, and the second of those will be our guest expert, Dr. Johanna Boss. So be sure to tune in for those. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening.